Amen. Thank you, Brother Gary. Appreciate the song tonight. Certainly the Lord is able to carry everything that we have to bear. We praise Him for that. I'd like you to open your Bible tonight, if you would please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We're a couple of weeks away from starting our new series on Sunday night in the book of Joshua. Next week, uh, Brother Nick Graves is going to be with us again, and he's going to preach our Sunday night service. So I encourage you to be here to hear him. Brother uh, Nick's training for ministry and going to the mission field, so I'm sure you want to hear the message that he has to bring, and perhaps he'll tell us a little bit about uh, some of the things that have gone on in his life uh, uh, as he's uh, been up to Canada and trying to witness up in that area. So come next Sunday night for sure and hear Brother Nick Graves as he, he preaches to us. But tonight, uh, I you know, we've been taking this sort of a three-month hiatus away from a regular Sunday night service through a book as we normally do. So we are going to start Joshua in just a couple of weeks. But tonight I'd like to uh, take another subject and I want to speak to you from the book of Hebrews. And I do hope that sometime in the not-too-distant future, Hebrews may be one of the books that will study uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. This is just a marvelous book, and it contains so many things that reveal uh, the Old Testament to us and explain things from the Old Testament. So before I get into the sermon tonight, I I do want to give you uh, some background on this book that will help us to understand just a little bit better why the author uh, spends uh, such a, a good time with us Uh, giving a stirring message of assurance in the end of chapter 6. And we can begin our background investigation into the book of Hebrews by just looking at the title. The title, of course, is Hebrews. And so that must mean that Paul, I think it was Paul who wrote it, that he had in his mind Hebrew Christians, uh, Jewish Christians. And these are people that had felt persecution because of the change from uh, the old pharisaical system of keeping laws and commands to this newfound freedom that they had in worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And I want to tell you that uh, don't let anybody uh, tell you that going back to rules and regulations, uh, that that's a better method of producing good Bible-believing Christians. Unfortunately, in many of our churches, they have instituted a pharisaical system where they like to look at uh, the length of dresses and the length of hair and, and all those kinds of things. And that's how they judge people's spirituality. And they look at the, all the thou shalt nots that they impose on everyone But I think that you'll never be more liberated when you discover that the change that takes place in us comes from the heart. That's where the place uh, change has to be. And when your heart is right, you really don't have to worry about a person's spirituality. So these Hebrew Christians, though, they had given up this old system that they lived in. Now they've found new life in Christ, but they're in a time of persecution. And when persecutions came... They began to wonder about those old traditions and practices that they had. And they were wondering, is it better for us to go back to the old system that we worshipped in before? Or is it better to follow this new religion that we're in? And of course, it really wasn't a new religion at all. Because Christianity is just a continuation of those Old Testament prophecies and the fulfillment of all those things. But nevertheless, the, the unbelieving Jews did not believe that. And, of course, that's the reason why that they crucified Jesus when he claimed to be the Messiah. If you remember in Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he said that Jesus was a man approved by God. And he said, you have taken him and by wicked hands you have slain. Well, these 
persecuted Jewish Christians found out that following Christ would be just exactly as Christ said. He said, the world hates me and it will hate you also. And so those old Jewish Christians, they hated Christ, but they also hated these new people that have picked up the, uh, the religion of Christianity. So here we have some people who are in very dire need of just some rock-solid good assurance. They were in such despair that they'd gone so far as even to consider going back into those old ways and those old practices And I want you to understand, these aren't people that were in danger of losing their salvation. When you get saved, you're never in in danger of losing salvation. But they were in danger of making a very bad decision. And their decision to go back into those old ways and old practices would, in effect, ruin their testimony and the rest of their lives for Christ. Now, as you know, though, assurance of salvation is something that all of us encounter at some time or another. Now, for persecuted Christians living in the time that they did, uh, this was a very difficult thing for them. Were they really saved? Did they have the assurance that what they believed was actually the truth? And all throughout Christian history, from the time of the first church, even through 20 centuries of Christian history, there have been martyrs for Christ who have always had that thing on their mind. Is what I believe the truth? Well, the Hebrews needed some assurance, and so the writer of Hebrews recognized this problem, and so he wrote this letter to reassure them and to point out to them that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and they need not go back and live under the Old Covenant again, and not to go back into those old traditions and sacrifices. Now, this evening, that will be the subject of my sermon. I want to talk to you about assurance. So let's please uh, stand, if you would, and let's read from God's Word tonight from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading with verse number 13. Our text verses will be uh, verses 18, 19, and 20. But verse number 13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, and that means the unchangeableness of it, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We just ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom as we study your word tonight. Help us to find some assurance in the words that we hear. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the introduction of the message, I referred to the author of Hebrews as the writer. I did say that I do believe that the writer of Hebrews is is Paul, and yet Hebrews is actually the only truly anonymous book that we find in the New Testament. I certainly do believe that the internal evidence does point to Paul. Uh, When you think about 
how suited that Paul was to explain the things that he talks about here. He was an expert in Old Testament law and one who could surely connect those things with New Testament Christianity. Paul had been a respected member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was trained at the feet of one of Israel's greatest rabbis, Gamaliel. And as we read what Paul writes, uh, I believe he wrote here through the book of Hebrews, we can sort of compare the style of writing to Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, and we can find there that the same style pretty much is used. Now, Paul was a person who was a very intelligent man. He was a a man who knew the Word of God very well. And for a man like him to write on the subject of assurance, even that in itself is reassuring to us. Well, the way that Paul develops the arguments in Hebrews is that he begins arguing from the negative side. He understood the Jewish religious system. He knew that they believed in the atoning sacrifices. But he also knew that to go back to the old covenant and to reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ would mean that there would be no sacrifice for sin. And in fact, he says in Hebrews 10, verse number 4, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. So that old sacrificial system, that wasn't good enough. It wasn't adequate to meet their needs. And And so he says, if you go back into that, after Christ has fulfilled what the Old Testament says, if you try to go back into that old life again, those old traditions and old practices, he says, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. The fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and all the sacrifices made in the Old Testament is found in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died, his death abolished all of those Old Testament practices. So there's no need for any more sacrifices. But then he goes on and he says that although it's true, you are facing persecution, yet he says to them, your persecution is light. He says, you haven't yet faced any worst case scenarios. And certainly they hadn't been through what Jesus had been through. I want you to turn over, if you would, please, to chapter 12 for just a moment. And I want to see how he uh, approaches Christ's suffering as compared to theirs. He says in verse number 3 in Hebrews 12, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now look very closely at verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So what he's saying is here, saying here is, think of this example of Christ. Think how Jesus withstood all of that pain. Think of all the suffering that he went through, the humiliation, the severe beatings. Think about the cross. And know this, that Jesus went to that cross without even a moment of hesitation. And so in effect, Paul is saying, what are you crying about? you still got your life. You haven't made the ultimate sacrifice. You've not yet shed any blood. So what's all this talk about giving up? You know, I can just see Paul standing in a congregation in an American church today, in a modern church today, and addressing the Christians there. Based on what he says here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, I don't think that he'd have very much sympathy and much much, uh, empathy for this petty excuses that we're always making. Paul would stand before us tonight and he would say to us, excuse me, you can't go to church. Why? Oh, you're too tired to go to church. Oh, I understand that. Sure, everybody gets tired. I understand that. He says, what now? Are are you saying to me that you're not going to go to church because Sister Johnson hurt your feelings? 
What do you mean by that? Well, I understand that, sure. You can't go to church. Why? Oh, the playoffs are on. I do understand that. Well, if you think that's the way Paul thought about his Christianity, you are sadly mistaken. He didn't accept petty excuses. So I don't think that Paul would put up with the things that we say. And don't think that Paul hadn't been through it all too. He certainly had. He was stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked three different times, bitten by a serpent. He suffered hunger and, and, and cold. Uh, and yet still Paul went forward pressing on preaching the gospel of Christ. So if there's anyone who could, by comparison, get their point across about going through hardship, Paul was the man to do it. But we understand something different about Paul. I mean, he was a very masterful preacher, and he knew what you can't do. You can't always get up in front of people and try to shame them into doing things that they ought to do. Shame is not always, nor is it ever, I think, the best way that you can actually get people to do what's right. And so what Paul does, he shifts his perspective and he goes away from the negative and he comes to the positive. And he tells us or he shows us the most satisfactory results of why you want to live a Christian life is because of the promises that God made, because of what God says he has for you. There's something that lies ahead. So why do we suffer these things? Why go through it all? It's so much easier for us to go back to the world system, start living like the world again, do what they do. Why don't we? Well, we don't because God has given us a promise. There's something coming for us. And if you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb and you've been given a new birth, you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have a new life, you know that that has made you heir to all the eternal promises of God. Now, Paul states it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Then he goes on in the fifth chapter of the same book. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle was dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And he's talking about this old robe of flesh that someday that we're going to lay down. We're going to get rid of this. And we have that heavenly home, not made with hands. God's going to give us a new body. So why? Why would they receive all of this? Well, he stated it for us. It's because they are heirs to the promises of Abraham. And following that old covenant, now that Christ has come, that would not bring them into the promises and the possessions that Abraham had. And so these Hebrew Christians, they also have access to something that Paul wrote to the Galatians. A few years before this, Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, and he said, For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul tells the Jewish Christians that hope is grounded in the fact that they've been united by God by faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, they are heirs to all the things that was promised to their father Abraham. Now, I can tell you by my own experience that the promise of good things to come, understanding what God has for me, that's a far stronger incentive for me to do what's right than to be shamed into doing what's right. 
So now Paul's ready to deal with this, this issue of assurance. He says, God has made a vow to you. God has made a promise. And according to our text in Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18, he tells us it is impossible for God to lie. Now, the way that Paul shows us that we, have, we can really have assurance is to understand that we have an anchor. We have an anchor that holds. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. That's where our assurance comes from. That's this strong, gripping anchor. <clears throat> now, I want to show you, first of all, that there's an anchor of hope. An anchor of hope. I recently had a young man in my office, and he was very confused about hope. He had the idea that, that faith and hope involved taking some kind of a risk. And so he kept telling me that in order for God to bless you, what you really have to do, you have to reach out and you have to risk something. He said, you can't sit right where you are. You've got to go out and you've got to take a risk with God. Then he said, you've got to cast your bread upon the water. You know, I've learned this, that when people start talking about that and they use that verse, cast your bread upon the water, usually they have no idea at all what they're talking about. Now, when the Bible starts speaking about hope, there's nothing uncertain in this. Now, our uses, usage of that word hope, it does have an element of doubt in it. We say we hope that something will happen, and we're not sure exactly if it will or not, but we hope that it does. But when the Bible's talking about Christians and it talks about the hope that we have, it never talks about something that's unsure. In fact, did you know that the Bible refers to the second coming of Christ as being the blessed hope? And does that mean then that Christ may or may not come back? We're not sure whether he will or not. There's a possibility, but we don't know. Well, if that's what you think, you better explain that to the angels that were there at the ascension when Jesus went up. Because Jesus said, this same Jesus, or the angel said rather, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So they didn't say, well, there's a possibility he might come back. No, when they talked about hope, when they talked about faith in Christ, this is a sure thing. In writing to the Romans, Paul said in Romans 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. He said, hope maketh not ashamed. And what that verse means, that phrase means, is that there is no vanity in this hope. This is not like a world, a vainly world hope that will disappoint us and deceive us. But here we find a hope that's filled with confidence. And you can trust this. It's, it's rock solid. It's anchored. The hope of the Christian is anchored in the hope that Jesus is coming to deliver his people. In 2 Thessalonians we read, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. So when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about risk. You don't take risk with God. I mean, how can you talk about a risk when you know you have an anchor? There's a song titled, We Have an Anchor. The chorus says, Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. I didn't take any risk when I put my hope and my faith in Jesus. When I had my confidence in Him, I took no risk. I want you to notice this statement. Hope is not an unsure risk. So this is not something that you wish for. I mean, not like wishing upon a star so that you're not sure whether you're going to get it. It's sure hope, and it's present with us, 
And the Bible puts it in such a way that this hope is so sure that it encompasses everything with it as if it's already taken place. Did you know that? It's just like it's already happened. That's how sure it is. Here's how Paul put it in Romans chapter 8. He says in verse number 28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, listen, them he also glorified. Now you see what those verses are doing? It's taking us from our election in God, from eternity past, all the way to our glorification that we have in heaven. And he's saying this is as all sure for the believer as if it's already happened. This is so sure for the believer that before he was ever conceived in his mother's womb, this would take place. How could there be a risk in that? He says the one predestined, the one called, the one justified, he says he will also be glorified. Now, do you know when glorification takes place? It takes place when the hope is realized. And where is the hope? Anchored to the rock which cannot move. And where does that anchor grip? We'll look at our text verse, Hebrews 16, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So it's anchored inside the veil. You know, that veil is in the very throne room of God. Our text tells us that Jesus passed through the veil, and he anchored our hope in the immutable, unchanging, never-diminishing power of God. Is that something that will sustain you in hard times? I think it will. Not only do I think it will, I know that it will. Because I know it did it for these first century persecuted Christians. And it's done it for Christians all through 20 centuries of church history. So the anchor that holds is an anchor of hope. But let's go on because there's more here. There's also an anchor of steadfastness. Verse 19 says that the anchor is steadfast. Now, that's a word that carries with the idea of firmness. It means like taking a step and being sure that what you step on is absolutely solid underneath. It won't give way, it won't slip, and it will hold you. When a captain puts down his anchor, he doesn't throw it out on a sandy beach. And he doesn't take it and wrap it around floating seaweed. He puts it in a place where the anchor grips tightly, and that anchor won't let the ship float away. Now, there are three ways that the anchor holds us, and maybe there are more, but we'll talk about three. One, one, the first one is the way the anchor holds us, it keeps us from drifting. There's an old song that we sing that says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And do you know that? If, you've left, if you're left to yourself, that's exactly what you would do. You would drift away. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit living within your heart, you would drift away. you drift too far away. But the Holy Spirit is there, and he's there to anchor you. You ever had your soul yanked by the Holy Spirit? That ever happened to you? Years ago, I was directing choir in Kentucky, and we would sing this song, My Anchor Holds. And the chorus says, And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bark so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. 
Well, some of those folks back there in Kentucky, they like to slur the words of that together a little bit. And so instead of singing, my anchor holds, they would sing it like, my yanker holds. Well, you know, I'm not so sure that that's not absolutely theologically correct. We have a yanker, and his name's the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes he lets a little slack get in the chain, and something happens when you get to the end of that slack. It's like a dog being chained up to a tree. The mailman comes into the yard, and that dog takes off after Lino, and, and he's chasing him down. But then that dog comes to the end of the chain, and like that, he gets jerked back. Well, that's what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, he sees you wandering away, and you get to the end of your chain. He's not going to let you go any further. And you know what that's called? It's called chastisement. You can only go so far, and then the Spirit comes down hard. And you know what the Bible says chastisement is for? Assurance. That's why he does it, for your assurance. It's described right here in Hebrews. Go back to chapter 12 again. Let's look at that just a minute. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 5. Hebrews 12, verse number 5. He says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? And so the Holy Spirit yanks your chain and he lets you know you belong to him. Now, the gist of this message in these verses is that if you have no chastisement, if you feel no remorse and you feel no sorrow, and if the Holy Spirit does not come to you and and put the clamps down on you and yank that chain, the message here is no chastisement, no sonship. If you can sin with impunity, if you can drift away, then your salvation is in the wrong place. It's not in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will keep you from drifting too far away. Now, related to the inability of that anchor to drift, we can also say this, that the anchor sets our boundaries. So when the anchor, the captain lowers the anchor, there's only so far that the ship can go. You see, there's a radius on the length of the chain on that anchor And the captain, when he throws down the anchor, he puts it in a place so that the ship cannot float too far away to get on to the rocks. Now, the problem, though, with many Christians in many churches is they try to nudge that anchor up and they try to move it into a different place. And they want to go beyond the boundary. They want to increase the boundary. Now, churches will do that with doctrine. You ever notice that there are many Baptist churches that have given up the name Baptist? They just took the name off the sign. You know why? Well, that's just too defining for us. We need to identify ourselves a little bit more like generic Christians. And if we do that, that will increase our appeal. Baptist distinctives and what Baptists have taught for centuries, those things are just too restrictive to us. And so the church picks up the anchor and they try to move it over a little bit. And they say, you know something? We shouldn't rebaptize those people who come to us from other denominations. If they've been immersed, that's okay with us. We really don't need to worry about this issue of church authority. Well, Christ didn't move the anchor. The weak pastor and a weak church moved the anchor. And then we think about church programs and music that churches use today and the social events. 
Oh, yeah, the people in the neighborhood, they'll come. Our young people, they'll come in droves. We just need to get a little bit of Christian rock and throw in a little bit of Christian rap there. And if we'll dress down with jeans with holes in them and we'll wear tie-dye shirts and dirty tennis shoes, we can get right down on the level with them and we can minister to them. What we need to do is we need to get a little bit more purpose-driven. Yeah, we know the purpose. The purpose is to pick up the anchor and move it over here where God doesn't want it to be. God wants us to keep our anchor solidly upon the rock of Jesus Christ and not let that anchor be moved. Keep it where it's supposed to be. Now, friends, when you get the anchor off the rock and you get into the foolishness of the sand, the Bible teaches us the house goes splat. Some of you, even in your own lives, you may be trying to pull up the anchor. And you're trying to move it over into places where that anchor has no place being. And so Christians today, they're fumbling around in the dark when their anchor should be in the light. And I'll tell you something. When you go to places where you have to turn the lights down low, then you know you're in the wrong place. Your anchor's been moved. Well, God doesn't want us to do that. Don't strain on the anchor. Leave it where God puts it and stay within those boundaries. Now, here's something else. A steadfast anchor gives us access. See, you know where the anchor is? Well, the chain on that anchor goes from right here, right here, right straight up to the throne of God. Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, knowing Christ gives you access to the Father. And the Bible says there's only one way that you're ever going to get to the Father, and that's to go through Him. Your access is your help that's anchored in Jesus Christ. And that chain goes from the knowledge, the saving knowledge that you have of Jesus Christ in your heart, to the presence of the Holy Spirit there, all the way right into the throne room of our Heavenly Father who's in heaven. You ever seen these old movies where a man uh, puts on a diving suit? puts on one of those big helmets and they lower him down in the water and they put a lifeline down there with him. And they say, if you get in trouble, give three tugs on the rope. And you know that's what what prayer is all about? When you get in trouble, you just give a tug on that lifeline and heaven leaps into action. Do you know why? Because that rope goes right from here, right up to there. It gives you access to the throne room. Now, do you think that's cause for assurance? I think it is. Whatever I need, my heavenly Father is always there to supply it. Philippians 4.19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. How does he do that? He does it by Christ as our anchor, according to Hebrews 6 verse 20. Because he says, Our forerunner, Jesus Christ, has entered into within the veil forever. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. So thank God for this. Our anchor is steadfast because our anchor is, in fact, the very Son of God himself. Now, let's finish the message tonight by talking about one other characteristic of the anchor. And that is, it is an anchor. It's the anchor of faith. Now, let's go back to our text verses, verses 19 and 20 once again. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, when Paul wrote to these Hebrew Christians, he uses here an analogy that they could readily understand. Now, he says in verse number 19 that Christ entered to that within the veil. And in verse number 20, he mentions the whole of the high priestly office of Jesus Christ. And those are references that they could understand. That veil is a reference to the veil that was in the temple and the tabernacle. I have a picture of that tonight. That's what we used in our tabernacle studies. And there's the high priest getting ready to go behind that veil to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, only the high priest was permitted to go behind that veil, and he only did it one time, and that was on the great day of atonement. And it was the responsibility of that high priest to always be busy when he was behind the veil. And so he wore a robe that was called the robe of the ephod. And on the robe of the ephod, on the hem of that garment, was sewn in bells all the way around. And we have a picture of that. The picture of the bells that are on the high priest's garment... And those bells had to be ringing all of the time that he's behind that veil in the Holy of Holies. Those bells said, he's busy. He's going about his work. He's doing what God has told him to do. And if those bells should ever stop ringing, the Bible says that he would be struck dead. They have to hear the bells ringing. Well, you ask, well, what's that all about? What does that mean? Well, everything in the tabernacle in some way pointed to Jesus Christ. And what those bells symbolize is that Jesus is always busy on our behalf. We belong to him and he's always busy for us. He never stops. He never sleeps. Jesus is always doing his job. He's our great high priest. And so what happens when my faith begins to waver? My high priest is always busy. He's always working. He never stops. What happens when, my, when doubts begin to fill my mind? I'm not sure if I'm going the right way, if I'm doing the right thing. And I don't know about my assurance. Well, my high priest, Jesus Christ, is busy. The bells are always ringing. He never stops. At the same time that my anchor holds me down so I'm steadfast, that anchor is also lifting me up. I don't pull him down because my faith falters. He pulls me up because he has sustaining faith. Peter said, we are kept by the power of God through faith. Now let's get this point, this last one. I have faith because Christ is faithful. I persevere in my faith only because Christ is faithful. My salvation is secure. I know that when I'm weak in the faith that Christ always abides faithful He's always busy. He's always moving. And what Christ is doing, he's protecting my salvation at every point. It's things like this right here. It's things like that that show us that our salvation is absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. We could never lose it. Not because of what I'm doing. It's because of what he's doing. He's always busy for me. Now, when I think about that, I'm reminded of a story that I heard some time ago. There were two preachers that lived on opposite sides of the country. And so one preacher was going to visit the other. He was going to come and preach for him. So he flew across the country, arrived a few days early. And he noticed when he got there that he was in bad need of a haircut. So he told his, he told his preacher friend, I, I need to get a haircut. He said, well, I can take care of that. I want to take you down here to my barber. Her name is Grace. And Grace will take care of you. So they went down to see Grace and the barber Grace. And she trimmed his hair and she gave him a shave. 
Well, about a week later, the preacher went back home. And so he called his friend and he said, you know something? There's something very peculiar about that barber of yours. He said, I've been home for a week now and there's no hair growing on my head and there's no hair growing on my face. My face is as smooth as a baby's behind. He said, that is some barber you got there. Well, the preacher's friend knew what was up and he said, that's the way it works. He says, you were shaved by grace and once shaved, always shaved. Well, I do know this. I was saved by grace. And once I've been saved, I'm always saved. I have assurance because my hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. He's made it solid. He's the eternal God. As long as he lives, I will live. Aren't you glad there's an anchor of hope, an anchor of steadfastness? We have an anchor of faith. I want to ask you something tonight. How's your grip? How are you holding on? How much assurance do you have? You know, when we need something, when we need that strong assurance, we can always look to passages just like this. And we go back to that original promise that Jesus made. And the promise is just as sure now as it was the day that he made it. It hasn't changed. Now, Paul wrote this for them, but he also wrote it for us. We have it in the Bible preserved for us. Do you know that you're saved? Are you confident in your salvation? I pray tonight that God gives you assurance just by knowing what he's done for you, that he always remains faithful and God will always give you the strength to carry on. And when you know that, when you know that, when you have that assurance in your heart, it's faithful Christians with that kind of assurance that make a difference in a faithless, unbelieving world. Maintain that faith. Through God, you can maintain that faith. And when the world sees it, they'll know that your hope is anchored rock solid. Keep on keeping on. That's what you need to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great assurance we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Just knowing, Lord, that you're always busy. You're always busy on our behalf. You never falter. You never fail. And because you cannot fail, we will never fail in our salvation. We're looking for the day that you come back, that blessed hope. Keep our hearts strong in the faith. Give us the assurance that we need. Bless in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.